Through the epistle of 1 Peter, in each individual chapter, Peter referenced suffering in general and unjust suffering in particular. That is, suffering that is the result of one's commitment to Jesus Christ. This was Peter's stated purpose for writing the epistle. We read in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, he said, here's why I've written. I have written to briefly testify that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Namely, after you have suffered a while, that you might be completed, established, strengthened, and settled. Our church mission statement reads, presenting every person complete in Christ, Colossians 1.28. But there's more than suffering, a lot more. And God has used these things, suffering along with the other things, to mold us to completeness in Christ. And that is where Peter concludes this short epistle this morning in chapter 5. And I pray, Father, that as we look at this text, I pray that we will see beyond our immediate circumstances to the big picture that you have purposed for our lives in Christ. Namely, that we might be molded into the image of Christ, complete, established, strengthened, standing firm in Christ. I pray that you would minister and then teach each of us individually this morning from your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in order to establish his credibility, When speaking to the issue of elders in a local church, Peter begins with an abbreviated resume, chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, I who am a fellow elder, I'm speaking not theoretically, but I am speaking from experience. I too am an elder, and I know what it is to be an elder. You want to know what it is to be a school teacher? You talk to a school teacher. You want to really know what, what it means to be a school teacher? Become one. Or a doctor, or a dentist, or a plumber, or a whatever. That's what Peter is saying here. I'm a fellow elder as I speak to this. I am also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I am speaking from experience, and I'm also speaking as one of the remaining eyewitnesses to the life and the death of Jesus Christ, as well as his resurrection. And also, I speak as a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. uh, Paul Peter witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, it says that Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothing was like white as light. Wow. Peter experienced that, one of only three, Peter, James, and John. He was saying, I'm speaking also with the credentials of one who is an apostle, who experienced the glory that one day will be revealed in us, it says in Romans 8.18. And in Daniel 12, that we will shine as the sun Brightly as the stars. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 
20 or 50 and following, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, this corruptible will put on incorruption, this mortal will put on immortality, and the glory that Jesus revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration will be revealed somehow in us. I don't know how, that all, how all that's going to happen, but Scripture says that it, that it will. Now this, it, this is who is addressing four groups of people. And the first are the elders. Verse 1. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. The Lord, Savior, and Head of the Church, Jesus, said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He then instituted local churches, geographically scattered, where groups of believers could associate for mutual benefit, edification, encouragement, and protection. Peter, here, is addressing the elders of a local church. But by way of implication, he is saying the local church is his gift to all of us because it's essential to our spiritual well-being if we are to be complete, established, strengthened, and settled. And for the local church to be what the Lord intended it to be, its under-shepherds or elders must live to a particular high standard. And so we have here a profile which begins with where, or maybe better said, who. The elders are those who come from among, literally, in you. Elders are not some group of people who live in another city or in a hierarchical position that speak down to us. They come from among us. And their involvement, I think that word is speaking to involvement. They are a part of, they are a part of the local church. In our Western culture, we have largely adopted a business model of church oversight. And I spoke earlier in that article of those who are board elders, who serve a function um, uh, that isn't necessarily ministering among, but is kind of over and above. But in the real world of sheep and shepherds, a good shepherd will smell like sheep. In other words, the elders will be among and a part of the flock. Now that's who. Why do we have... Do what I should have done. Do what? Well, that's what I was going to do. <laughs> but I'm of that generation that's afraid of computers. <laughs> okay, where? What? The word there translated shepherd 
of the flock is the word poimino. It literally means to feed. But as, when it's translated as, that's a verb, to feed, but to, in the noun form, this same word is translated in Scripture, pastor. There are three interchangeable terms in the New Testament referring to this, these individuals. Presbyteros, which means one who overseers. Episcopos, which means to stand before or to lead, and paimano, one who feeds, usually translated pastor. The word shepherd, the word that's translated shepherd here in the noun form pastor, probably is the best word to define all the functions of overseeing, leading, and feeding. Three different terms, but all referring to the same individuals. Uh, and as I said, shepherd, I believe, best defines what an elder, pastor, overseer is to be. One who feeds, protects, oversees, and edifies the body of believers. Peter further defines shepherd in describing how they are to function. He describes them in this way. Not by compulsion, but willingly. When, when I came to the, to the church in Ohio, there's three or four of you here that are familiar with that church. It was a church of an average age of over 60. It was a church that was in decline and dying. And they had these traditions and ways of doing things. And one of them was that almost the majority of the men in the church took turns serving as elders. It was not a calling, not a passion. It wasn't even done willingly. But they saw it as a responsibility to sit on the board and for a year attend meetings. That was it. The church was dead and dying. And that was one of the reasons. Today, that has totally changed around. The average age in that church has come down considerably, probably down in the 40s now. And the elders in that church do all of the teaching. And they see it as a calling. And it's a passion. And they're involved with the people. And they're connected. And it's being an elder in that church is a, being a shepherd. And it's not just attending a, a, a business meeting once a week. Uh, that's a Elder meetings were, were, are a very small part of what they do. But it's not by compulsion, it's willingly. And it's not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And not as being lords over above, but examples beside. See what the, the Greek word there means to a print left as an impression upon a blow that has been struck. Peter is saying here, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, follow me as I follow the Lord. Can you say to a new believer, you want to know what it's like to be, be a Christian? Just follow me. Just do as I do and you'll, you'll get the hang of it. Uh, you'll, you'll be doing what God would have you to do. In, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, which gives the qualifications of an elder, 
Paul began by saying, if a man aspires to be a shepherd in the local church, he aspires to a good work. That's the only kind of person who should be serving in a local church's group of shepherds. Those who aspire to it and are doing it willingly, eagerly, and are qualified as an example, and a passionate example of what it means to follow Jesus. And I think that's the kind of uh, people that we have on our elder board and the kind we need to be looking for as we move forward in the future. In verse 4, he says this last word about elders. And when the chief shepherd, the chief pastor, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, I do not know what all the crown of glory entails, but I sure like the sound of it. Neither do I think that only faithful shepherds will receive the crown of glory. As believers, we all have a fabulous retirement plan. We just have to die to enjoy it. And that is part of it. The crown of glory. Let's move on to the second group Peter addresses. Likewise, the younger, submit yourselves to those who are elders. Now, what is younger? If you're 12 years old, 20 is ancient. In our culture, we have terms like millennials, Gen Xers, baby boomers, and so on. Then we have characterizations like 50 is considered middle age. Hogwash. 50 is halfway to 100. How many of you are going to live to be 100? But that's what we say. 50 is middle age. 60 is old. In Philemon, Paul said, he referred to himself as Paul, the aged one. And he was approximately 60 at that point in time. Now, 70 is considered elderly. 80 is considered vintage. 90 is antique. And 100, relic. (laughs) My mom is only four years from 100. And if uh, you don't think you're old at this age, all you got to do is have grandsons. They'll keep reminding you. Now, I'm not sure just when we quit denying our age and begin to brag, but somewhere along in there, that's what happens. Now, my sisters, uh, they always are sending me birthday cards, and I them. Uh, And my older sister, she's 75 years old, she sent me a card this year that is just absolutely tremendous. So tremendous that I can't read it from the pulpit. But if you want to know what it says, ask anybody in our home group. I sent my sister, I think I might have shared this with you, but I, I, I thought this one was great. This middle-aged lady looking at a head of lettuce inspecting it at the grocery store in the produce aisle. And the caption below says, at your age, you're somewhere between ripe and compost. <laughs> I like that. That's the kind of thing we send back and forth to each other. But back to our text. To whom does younger refer based upon the fact that Jesus told Peter to cast his net into the water and draw out a fish, and in the fish mouth there would be a coin. 
And Peter could then take that coin and pay the temple tax for himself and for Jesus. Now, based upon that only, some people infer that Peter was the only one old enough of the 12 disciples to pay the temple tax. And that was age 20. Therefore, all of the disciples except for Peter were teenagers. Now, I think that is a bit of a stretch. John, the Apostle John, certainly was a teenager in the days of Jesus. But clearly, maturity happened a lot sooner then. Marriage was at 15, 16 years of age. The life expectancy was much less than it is today. And somebody at age 30 would have been considered mature. The conclusion that I have come to is that younger would be those who were no longer dependents, but not necessarily fully established in life's adult responsibilities. In our day, that would be post-high, usually single, or recently married, perhaps. His, his admonition is stay connected. Stay accountable to extended spiritual family. Submit yourselves. Stay connected. And that is the tragedy that I have seen in our modern Western culture church is that so many young people after high school go off out from under accountable responsibility to a local church, exposed to things without that umbrella of protection, and so many forsake the faith, fall away, and the tragedy is, is heartbreaking. His admonition is stay connected to your local body of believers. All through this text, Paul has said, honor, submit, defer, respect, almost using these terms interchangeably, speaking of citizens, servants, wives, husbands and wives, youth, in fact, all. And that's where we see in our text in verse 5. All of you be submissive to one another, first of all. A spirit of humility has diffused more potential conflict than any other virtue. It also most accurately reflects the character of Jesus who said of himself, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So many, even as Christians, we wrestle, we struggle, there is no peace. Because we are heavy laden with, with self. We have not taken the yoke of Jesus, of humility. Paul, or Peter says, clothe yourself with humility. And that begins at home, in our homes, and in our local church. Becoming immature in Christ is a journey. It means suffering. It means staying connected to a local church. It, remain, it, it includes being clothed with humility as we interact with each other in the body of Christ. And certainly, I think this goes without saying, I'm running behind here, excuse me, 
clothed with humility, it certainly includes our relationship towards God. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. How does, how does one do this? How do we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Uh, the answer might surprise you. In this text, he gives four expressions of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And the first is casting all our cares upon him. Casting all our cares upon him or living in constant awareness of our dependent status. Living in constant awareness of our dependent status. Casting all our cares upon him. In Philippians, Paul said, be be anxious for nothing, in everything. Give it to the Lord. This This is acknowledging, this is, humbling ourselves before the hand of the Lord. Why? Because it's impossible through self-effort to live the Christian life. And furthermore, because to him it matters concerning you. That's a literal translation of the Greek text there. The, the to him is in the emphatic position. To him it really matters is the idea. He cares about you. So why wouldn't we? Humble dependence also includes sober-mindedness. Be sober. A mindset that never takes life lightly or for granted. It's the idea of a seriousness of mind. It's far more than not being drunk. It means mental alertness, focused attention, a seriousness of mind. It's so fascinating to see how that word sobriety is used in the many, many contexts of what its significance in prayer, its significance in facing temptation, and so on. And then he says in verse 8, be vigilant, awake, watchful. The price one must pay to avoid being put in the category of also ran is vigilance. Vigilance is the doorway to spiritual freedom. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I I put the diabolos there because Peter could have used many other terms. Satan, prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. But he used diabolos, which means slanderer or accuser. In September... Two weeks back in Ohio, a lady there that we have known for many years called and asked if she could talk with Sherry and I. We met with her twice. As we listened to her story, a story which we knew much of, she had been through numerous marriages. She had experienced ups and downs of all different kinds, really struggled with a lot of depression. And uh, in September a year ago, her 20-year-old son committed suicide. And this is an aside. 
but I've been involved with three or four suicides in the last year. Every one of them were on numerous psychotic drugs prescribed by psychiatrists. You think maybe there's a connection? I don't want to go there other than to say, be careful. In many cases, drugs mask, and that's all they do. They're not replenishing chemicals in their brain. They're just masking problems. Primary solution to depression is facing the pain and the issue that's causing it. Drugs, in most, many cases, uh, defeat the process of dealing with the cause of depression. But that was the case in this young man's life, as well as the others that I've been involved in, in the last year. And through this experience, uh, it, it uh, brought things to a head for her. She'd been wrestling for years. And as we uh, listened to her story, she was being uh, one of the tip-offs that the, there was demonic involvement in her case was the confusion in her mind. She just couldn't concentrate. She, she was confused about so many things. She was, been, she was being tormented. She was being harassed. And as her story came out, we just asked, Lynn, have you ever been involved in the occult? The door opened. Oh my, had she. She, in her early years, had opened the door of satanic entry into her life through involvement with the occult. So we led her in prayers of repentance and forgiveness. We we brought her to a place of renouncing Satan. And then we taught her how to stand against the fiery darts of the wicked one as she understood and, and pro proclaimed who she was in Christ. She's very definitely a believer. And she, she renounced Satan. She took her stand of who she is in Christ. And then using the shield of the faith, the shield of the faith, she stood against the enemy and his accusations and his slander. She was so beaten down by the accusations that she was receiving as though it were truth. And she was been believed that these were coming from within her. They were coming from without. And she began to stand in faith. The faith. The faith is the word of God. And she was standing in the faith. Speaking truth. We got an email last week telling us of the freedom that she is experiencing for the very first time in her life. <clears throat> the fourth thing, resist the enemy. Steadfast in the faith. <clears throat> The word steadfast is the picture of a closed phalanx or a moveless tower. And te piste, the faith. I'm putting it up there because as in Ephesians 6, when we preach there about quenching the fiery darts of the evil one, 
the shield of the faith. It's the same here, standing steadfast in the faith. It's not how much faith I can muster up. It's standing in the faith, believing what it says, and putting it as a shield. This should be Sunday School 101. Common knowledge to everywhere, but it's not. But it is common throughout the whole world to face the fiery darts of the evil one. And know that you're not alone when you face temptation, but you stand in the faith, and we are given the responsibility to stand. So Paul has addressed the elders. He had addressed those who are younger. He's addressed all of you. Then he says, us. And I so appreciate that about Peter. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory, our calling, God's stated purpose for the redeemed, the children of God, those who have been adopted as sons of God and heirs with Christ. This is our calling, and that calling is to his eternal glory. And back in verse 6, Peter said, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Why? That he may exalt you in due time. And folks, we will be exalted in due time with his eternal glory. But in the meantime, before the glory, there's the grind. Before the crown, Jesus experienced the cross. In the meantime, stake focused. In verse 11, excuse me, in verse 10, he says, After you have suffered a while, you will be completed, established, strengthened, and settled. Romans 8, 28 and 29, I think, summarizes much of what Peter has been saying all throughout. We know that all things for good to those who are called according to his purposes. In his purpose, whom he has called them, he has also predestined. that we become conformed to the image of his Son. And God is working all things, suffering, our local church, experiences that you have in life, you name it, all of it is a part of his useful purpose to bring us into conformity to his Son, the Lord Jesus. So, stay focused And don't lose perspective. And he says in the next verse, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this, all of it, is the true true grace of God in which you stand. True grace is not a guaranteed shield from the evil that is in this world or from temptation. True grace is not guaranteed healing of the ailments and diseases that come with living an immortal body. True grace is not a guarantee that you will not suffer, and sometimes suffer unjustly because of your devotion to Jesus. 
True grace is not a guarantee of prosperity, comfort, and ease. In fact, more often than not, it is the denial of comfort, prosperity, and ease that God uses in our lives. But true grace is the promise that God will use all things to accomplish his good purpose in our lives. True grace is the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, no matter what the circumstances or the evil or the evil one's accusations are saying. I want to read that again. True grace is the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, no matter what the circumstances or the evil one's accusations are saying. True grace is the promise that we will experience this grace only as we live out our faith in the real world of life and living. And the, the Greek word there at the very end, the word stands, stete, is in the imperative tense. It's a command. We are the ones that are held responsible to stand. True grace is God's enabling power. But we are the ones responsible to exercise that in our lives. It is up to us then to stand and to take advantage of the shield of faith and so on. True grace is the promise that we will experience this grace only as we live out our faith in the real world of life and living. Some of these graces have been related here, relating to all people in a way that we give honor living clothed in humility, living connected to a local church family in an accountable relationship, living soberly and vigilantly, living steadfastly, resisting the enemy of our soul. True grace is not some kind of a magic pill that we swallow or a, bush, a, a button that we push. It's a lifestyle of living taking advantage of the grace that God has given us. And it's a balanced life. It's a whole, a whole life of sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts, of obedient communion, submissive communion with him. This is a letter. <clears throat> Peter is an epistle, or in a letter, First Peter. And he mentions in verse 12, Savanus, as the one who actually did the writing, Peter dictated, and Sylvanus was the emanuensis. Don't you like that term? I, I, I think it's pretty good. That's a fancy term for secretary or somebody who does the writing. And Sylvanus is actually Silas, the same Silas who in Acts 12, or Acts 16, was in jail singing with the Apostle Paul after they had received many stripes. And then he mentions she who is of Babylon, Probably a well-known believer, hostess of a home church perhaps, much like Priscilla. We don't know anything about this woman. She is just mentioned here, that's all. But they would, they, they would know who she was. And then Mark, in verse 13, Mark my son, the same Mark who left Paul on his first missionary journey in Acts 13. And his signature statement is, Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The epistle of 1 Peter speaks to the issue of living peaceably in a hostile world. 
But all the how-tos in the world will be of no avail unless one finds himself in Christ Jesus. The key, the only way to have peace in this life is to be in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this epistle that we have studied. I thank you for the incredible instructions that are found therein. And I thank you, Father, that in the end, they all lead to peace, true peace, peace that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, as we are challenged, and we have been and we will be in many ways, when we face circumstances that just don't seem to add up, they seem to contradict what the truth of your word says, may we, Father, in humility, come before you, and sanctify the Lord God in our heart and in our lives. And trust you, no matter what. Easier said than done. Even in suffering, which is such a major part of what we've been studying, you have promised that you would never leave nor forsake. You didn't promise that you would deliver us, but you did promise that you would never forsake us. I thank you, Father, for your promises. Most of all, I thank you for the object of those promises, Jesus Christ. In your name I pray, amen.